Hey, welcome back to the program. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, we love you and thank you and praise you for who you are and all that you've done for us and ask that you would bless this program and all who listen. Lord, that you would give us grace, you'd give us mercy. Give us the desire to please you. Give us the desire to honor you in in how we live, in how we live today. Lord, we thank you for our faith. Help us never to take it for granted. And give us give us mercy for a fresh start, especially when we when we fall short, when we start out on a path and then fail to live it up. Not live it up, live it out, Lord. <laughs> we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, I hope that you are honoring this month of May by praying a rosary at a minimum, right? Pray a rosary every day, uh, asking for our Blessed Mother, for her beautiful, sweet intercession as your mother. Receive the gift that Jesus gave you. And the way the church celebrates this, in part, is by setting aside the month of May, dedicating it to her, to the Blessed Mother. And, and so welcome that gift, the gift of Mary's motherly care, her motherly intercession. Last week I had on a wonderful gift, Sister Mary Eucharista, and she talked all about uh, Mary, the Blessed Mother, as the untire of knots, the untire of knots. And in fact, yesterday was her day of uh, prayer, day of quiet. And so maybe some of you had a chance to, to do that. But whether or not you attended her silent day of prayer at the Immaculate Heart Retreat Center here in lovely Spokane on the South Hill, I do hope and pray that you will experience the Blessed Mother as the untire of knots. If you remember the program, I actually prayed. But more than that, Sister prayed for me. She prayed that the Blessed Mother would be for me the untire of knots. And so I, uh, and then I prayed, I prayed for you. If you missed it, too late. <laughs> Not too late. No, the Lord is outside of time. He can see uh, all of those who will ever hear that prayer and be blessed by it. And uh, he can bless you. So go back and uh, you can go to MyCatholicFaith.org, find the program with Sister Mary Eucharista, or go to the YouTube channel, My Catholic Faith TV, or go to I Love My Catholic Faith with Dr. Tom Kern on Facebook, or just go to MyCatholicFaith.org. And you can click on any one of those and you'll see the interview with Sister Mary Eucharista about Mary, the untire of knots. So why am I going into this? I'm going into this because even though I don't have the uh, complete story and testimony to tell, the Blessed Mother has done some beautiful things to untie some knots. I, I was specifically asking Sister to pray for that regarding a couple of real estate transactions. And in fact, one of the knots has been untied, and the other one looks like it's going to be untied. So I don't want to um, you know, put the cart before the horse here, but I do want to say to you, out loud that I am here to witness to the incredible motherly care of our Blessed Mother in my regard, in how I have experienced her motherly intercession untying some knots in my professional life, in the work that I do to help families discern and take action to move to a place where they can flourish. And you know, it's interesting, I'm talking with a lot of folks who are also grandparents moving to be near their kids. And grandparents who are moving with their kids to be able to be with their grandkids as well. It's, it's been a generational thing. It's really fascinating. It's been a generational thing to see families um, uh, wanting to think not just to their kids, but down to the next generation, how they're called upon to be a steward, to help their kids to flourish, also means to help their grandkids flourish. I remember someone... Uh, a buddy of mine who was a mentor years ago, decades ago, he was saying that as he got older, the horizon that he had went from not just watching over like what school your kids were in from K through 12, but you had to have a sense of stewardship over all the way through college. 
And then now beyond that to not only getting them launched after college into the you know their state in life, often most of them right, are going to end up married, uh, but wanting to care for their grandchildren, that that's the the end game, right? That's the that's like sort of the final picture. I mean, there are some who are going to get down to the great grandchildren level, but the majority, if they're blessed, even to be healthy enough, they they get to that place where they can enjoy their grandchildren, and that that becomes the you know that that sense of the stewarding care I have for my kids' lives extends down to my grandchildren, uh, and I think that's so beautiful, and I, and I'm seeing it. I, I'm much more attuned to it now doing real estate the way I have been, um, wanting to help families find places where they like a lot of folks, they want to, they either want to buy like enough property where they can have several homes, either subdividing or putting more than one, um, building or structure on the property itself, or they want to be able to buy, uh, several homes in, in a, in a neighborhood, you know, in the same area. And whatever the the situation is, it's definitely a phenomenon. It's this. It's it is a phenomenon. Um, sorry, I'm. It's coffee. I need. I need a. Well, pick me up here. So, I, in fact, I heard a snippet of another podcast. This wasn't a faith based podcast, but this uh, sociologist did research on unemployment. And what he discovered was that the low unemployment rate statistics percentage is actually obscured by the fact that there are an extraordinarily high number of men in there, like from 22 to 55. So these are main years of working and of... Uh, contributing, you know, producing, um, that are neither working nor looking for work. And the number of American men aged 22 to 55 who are neither working nor looking for work was just under 7 million. That is a staggering number. And the number one activity, like, well, what are they doing if they're neither working nor looking for work? You probably know where this is going. (laughs) The number one activity, what they spend almost 40 hours a week doing is being on screens. Being on screens. On their smartphone, on their video game, uh, on their uh, smart TV, streaming videos, series, movies, etc. I'm telling you that those are, boy, to not speak so harshly, but portals of hell, if they're just dispiriting, emptying a noble spirit in men, a courageous spirit in men, a, a, a spirit of hope, a spirit of get out there and go conquer a hill, and instead, it's easier, softer, and more pleasant and satisfying to sit and consume whatever it is these screens are giving 40 hours a week. That is so, that is tragic. That's tragic. And, and, and those men are not counting on the unemployment uh, roles because they're not looking for work. How sad is that? How did I get on that? I don't even remember how I got onto that. <laughs> I was talking about, I don't remember. Well, I'm just going to dive back to uh, the, the theme that I started with. Oh, untire of knots. That's right. <laughs> Grandparents, grandchildren. Yes, taking care of kids. So that is actually connected to an, the insight about the need that we have to be good stewards as parents and even grandparents over our kids' lives, that it doesn't just extend to what school they're in or how they're being educated through high school, but it's even watching over them into college and through college. 
that the college that you, if, if your kids are going to go to college, the choice of which college they go to is so very important. Because if we live as we do in a time that is not marked by Christendom, where the church and the Catholic faith and faith in Christ are have a seat at the table and they're respected, and you're going to find uh, a body of believers that have a a sense of welcome and openness to it um, at a typical university or even at a typical Catholic university, don't count on that. Do not, in fact, expect that it's not true. It's it's one of the rules I learned in technology when we would do lots of live streaming uh, and we would do events involving uh, audio, video, uh, conferences, recording, things like that. And the rule that we learned was Technology doesn't work until you prove it does. So anytime what we would be setting up a sound system, something to record or amplify, especially when it involved live streaming something or um, recording video in high quality and audio, even if we'd used all the equipment a hundred times, the basic rule was it doesn't work until you prove it does. And even though we are doing the same thing, it's just another occasion using the same equipment, the same setup, uh, expect that something is going to break down and you're going to need to have a backup option. And so every like ch- uh, link in the chain that we needed to have a backup option to, like, oh, you need another, another power supply, another cord running from the power supply into the wall. You need another source of power to be able to <laughs> charge the, the event. You need a, a second recording piece of equipment, a second computer. Every little link in the chain to accomplishing something, you wanted to have not only prove that it works, but a backup. Whew, I, I think I stepped into some... Uh, wounds and memories in my life and career. Uh, But the same should be true regarding the Catholic university or college that you send your kids to. Don't expect that they're going to nurture and grow the Catholic faith of your son or daughter. Don't expect that your daughter or son is, is going to flourish in their Catholic faith at that university. No. Presume the opposite until you can prove that it does that there is a sufficient body of believers, intentional, that there's a culture of faith at the university that gives you a warrant, a reason for saying, yes, this is a place where my son or daughter is going to enhance and nurture and grow their faith. And and I know what that means. I know that that means that there is a, a little extra degree of saying I want my kids to be somewhat protected from the front lines of uh, being in environments where their faith is going to be under attack, viciously under attack, cleverly under attack, relentlessly under attack, undermined, weakened, overthrown, sometimes cleverly, and sometimes most dangerously at uh, so-called Catholic universities, Catholic, you know, universities that have a uh, an origin in the Catholic faith. Don't 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 just think that therefore that they're Catholic. No, the, your kids are going to lose their faith at a Catholic university until you prove to me that it won't. So uh, it, it's funny. It's um, I don't think I would have talked like this four years ago, but having kind of woken up to the to the reality of what's happened in our world over the last four or five years, we have to be more vigilant. We have to be more uh, aware. We have to take more serious efforts. You, you've heard the phrase that, that, that I've kind of made my own. It takes a heroic effort today to raise an ordinary Christian. It takes a heroic effort today from parents to raise a, an ordinary Catholic. By ordinary, all I mean is someone who self-identifies and practices their Catholic faith uh, in its fullness, Right, not just a cafeteria Catholic picking and choosing what I believe, uh, whether that's in faith or in morals or in practice. So, um, so there. <laughs> uh, well, today in the program, I have a theme, and that theme is uh, the I don't want to be a people pleaser. I want to be someone who seeks to please God, and I want to know what is it 
what is it in God's good pleasure for my life? Uh, I'm going to reference another uh, uh, insight that came to high performers when I come back, and then I'll, I'll move into Pope Paul VI. Hey, this is Tom Clarence. Great to be with you today. So on Monday, I have uh, Father Lewis. He will be with me on the program. Then tomorrow's Carrie. I got Carrie on tomorrow with me and my Faith and Family Friday. Monday is Father Lewis. Father Nagel is not available to be with us then. Then on Tuesday, I have a guest named Eric Jenis. And Eric Jenis is someone who is a composer and a performer of uh, classical, classically styled music. Um, and when you hear his music, it, it's, it's very moving because the, the themes are deeply connected to faith and like, let's call it human flourishing that happens um, when people of faith uh, are living their life. And so themes connected to uh, God and creation, redemption. And he brings this musical performance to, uh, uh, to different locations um, in order to spread uh, something that's beautiful, uh, a beautiful way of expressing the, the, truth, the truths of God and the truths of our Catholic faith. One of his places is in, uh, prison, is in prisons. And so on, my, on Tuesday, I have the opportunity to have him on the program, and we'll have a chance to um, hear some, some clips of his music, uh, his compositions, and in anticipation for his coming to the Spokane area. Yes, indeed. He is coming to do a benefit conf- uh, concert for the Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame. That's really exciting. So I will have more information for you about that event, but you can go to ChestertonAcademyOfNotreDame.com to uh, learn more about the event with Eric. And again, tune in on Tuesday for that interview. And um, he is doing, he's actually doing a second event as well in Northern Idaho. Um, I'll have to get the details of that event, but it's a, it's a, a concert benefiting a family that had a, a tragedy strike their, their family's lives. Uh, a mom of many children um, lost her battle with cancer and has gained heaven, but uh, her husband and father of, of many children uh, is in need of some financial support. So it's a benefit concert that'll be happening, I think, the day after the uh, concert benefiting the Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame. So uh, you'll hear more about that, though, on Tuesday's uh, edition of Sound Insight. So I mentioned I mentioned this uh, Saint, uh, Saint Pope Saint Paul the Sixth. Did you know that? Did you know Paul the Sixth, uh, the Pope that picked up the baton during the Second Vatican Council? Right, the Pope that was prior to John Paul the First. Right, he had a short thirty-three day reign, but uh, Pope uh, John Paul the First, then John Paul the Second. But before John Paul the First was yes, Pope Paul the Sixth, who was also canonized. He was uh, named a saint. Well, he wrote a, uh, his first encyclical, which is it's a programmatic encyclical. Typically, the the first encyclical of a pope is meant to lay out, in a certain sense, the fundamental thrust or themes that um, identify uh, like what's at the heart of uh, this man who is a priest of God that has been elevated, or, and a bishop, and has been elevated into the role of the vicar of Christ, the successor of St. Peter. Yes, the Pope. And Pope Paul VI was named Pope during... Uh, you know, a crucial time, right? So Pope Saint John Saint Pope John the Twenty Third had called the council, inaugurated the council, and got through the first session of the council, and then dies. And now it's up to uh, Paul the Sixth, who is, or the next Pope, whoever's gonna be this Pope, to um, step in and uh, carry forward the um, the work of the council. And so uh, Carlo Montini, uh, he uh, was the uh, Archbishop of Milan. Um, he was the one who was raised to the papacy. No, wait a minute. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, no, it's uh, Giovanni Montini. Sorry, Giovanni Baptista Montini. John, uh, John the Baptist 
Martini, uh, Montini, Carlo Martini. He was the Jesuit theologian. He was also an Archbishop of Milan and was a Jesuit, sort of a biblical scholar, and um, wrote very inspiring books, frankly, um, on scriptural reflections. So, no, it, it was <laughs> Giovanni Battista Montini was uh, Pope Paul VI, and he was uh, canonized. He was made a saint in 2018 by Pope Francis, along with uh, John the Twenty-Third. So, uh, prior to becoming Pope, uh, he, as the Archbishop of Milan, he put out a a a, a, a letter, a, a a letter as bishop, an Episcopal letter, to the people of his diocese. And I got to tell you, I've got a I think this interesting story. So I was at the North American College, and the North American College in Rome is it's the seminary for diocesan seminarians studying in Rome. It's uh, on the Giannicolo Hill, the Giannicolum, um, which overlooks the Vatican. It's actually on Vatican property, and um, we would walk to school at the Gregorian, the Jesuit University, or the Angelicum, the uh, Dominican University. And uh, but it was American seminarians from different dioceses living there, and there was a uh, and we, obviously, we had a library there, and I loved the library. I love theological libraries, or libraries that have a lot of theology and philosophy books, and I would poke around in the library. I was a pretty boring guy. <laughs> so I was poking around in the library one time, and I came upon a uh, the letter, the diocesan letter, of uh, Archbishop Montini to his diocese. I think it was like uh, published in something like 1958, and it was on the religious sense, the religious sense. There was this sense of uh, God, the sense of of who God is that is within us, and when we can nurture the sense of God, it will impact how we see the world. It will cast a light on and make us more aware of Here's the word, conscious of sin, conscious of what is true and good and beautiful, what is glorious and majestic, what is holy, what is from God, and a glimpse of God, a revelation of God. And it's so funny because, you know, here's this tiny, like not a very long, it's like a booklet. It wasn't even a book. It was just like a booklet. It was like this, this letter from a bishop to his people. And it was just kind of jammed in between these books, and I found it, and I read it, and I was thinking, wow. It was translated into English. It was really, I was really struck by this. Well, enjoying that that little letter, when it came time for me to do my doctoral dissertation, I knew I wanted to do something on St. John Paul II. And uh, in in that, you know, large... This is now in the in the 1990s, like late 90s. So John Paul II is still Pope. So it's kind of hard to do a doctoral dissertation on papal teaching when he's still alive and still teaching. <laughs> but I did it on interreligious dialogue. And interreligious dialogue, what is that? That's the dialogue that we as Catholics have, not with other Christians, non-Catholic Christians, like with Lutherans or Anglicans or, or uh, the Reformed tradition or evangelicals, right? Not that. Um, but it's, uh, it's that we as followers of Christ, now as Catholics too, but as Catholics, that what we have with other people of faith. So with the Jewish people, Muslims, with Buddhists, Hindus, and then other native religions, tribal religions. Uh, and what are the presuppositions? What are the conditions for the possibility of having dialogue with members of other faiths? And so John Paul II, he lays out an incredibly profound and beautiful teaching on how it is, why it is, and what it looks like for us as Catholics to engage in the work of dialogue as part of the Church's mission um, with members of these other religions. And he traces it back to the Blessed Trinity. Now, I'm not going to go into the 
300-plus page dissertation, I want to highlight Paul VI because he, John Paul II, writes in a way that is traced back to, rooted in, and expressive of what Paul VI does in his first encyclical, his programmatic first encyclical, which is called Paths of the Church. In Latin, Ecclesiam Suam, his church. Ecclesiam Suam, the paths of the church. And Paul VI there lays out three paths that we are supposed to walk, that we are called upon to walk as members of the church. And if we pay attention to these three paths, we will find incredible light motivation, we will find hopefully inspiration and encouragement, courage to pursue the Lord and live our faith. I like that. I like that. Why do I like that? Well, I mentioned that there was a book, not a book, uh, it was another one of these little podcasts, and just a snippet I heard, and the the host asked a question of this fellow who among many topics that he has pursued in his own research, he attempted to identify what is common among the highest of high performers, in, especially in sports. So in, in, in the field of, of whatever athletic pursuit, if you study the lives of the, the greatest of the greats, the highest of the high performers, what are the features that mark the lives of those individuals? And he said there were three. There were three traits. And this is relevant. So, I, you know, I, I want you to take note of this. The first is they pursued a high ideal. That what they were in pursuit of, what they were chasing after, what, if you will, what their vision was, what their ideal that was living inside their mind was, was very exalted. It was extraordinary. It wasn't a small goal. It was a big, big, big goal. And so they were pursuing that goal with a with degree of determination, uh, with intensity, with uh, fervor, uh, that they, uh, they were going after that goal. And, and as you can imagine, no matter how well they did, right, no matter how much they pursued that goal, that there was going to be this sense of there's still more. You can always get better. You can always improve. Okay, so that's the first one. A very exalted, a very big, heroic, great, goal that they were pursuing. The second was a sense of, the word that he used was insecurity about looking back at their starting point, about where they were coming from. There was this sense of uh, failure, a sense of insecurity, a sense of lacking. So when they looked backwards, they saw their starting point as something that was marked by insufficiency. It was marked by a problem, a brokenness. And so, uh, so if, you can, if you can hold on to this, they had two like, very strong poles in the ground. One was a current reality that they were attempting to leave behind that was marked by like a pain, uh, a, a, a lack an insufficiency. And the other pole was this exalted goal that they were pursuing with all their might. And what's the third thing? Well, the third thing was focus. They had a discipline. They had, the, the, the phrase he used was impulse control. They had the ability to discipline their impulses in order to be able to focus on the movement that they were taking from the painful situation they wanted to leave behind to the reward 
that would be theirs if they could only achieve their ultimate goal. And um, to travel along that path, to travel along that path required two different assets. If you were going to actually be the top of the top, the best of the best, the highest heights, and the two assets that were required to move you from where you're at to where you want to go, the painful the painful current reality to the ideal vision, the two assets were a high degree of gifting and a high degree of determination to get better. And so it's the willingness to work really hard alongside some really extraordinary gifting. So it's both. Gifting is never going to be enough. And unfortunately, hard work wasn't going to also be enough to get to the top of the top. There was both. So you, you see, that's actually painting an amazing picture. Uh, it, it, it paints a picture that I, I wouldn't say it confirms what um, so many, let's say, leadership books and uh, you know books that are attempting to help people uh, improve their lives. They talk all a ton about having a compelling vision, being clear about your current reality and the painful situation that that's there. And then you have to map out the path to get there. And you have to identify the obstacles that get in the way and remove them and identify the assets that you have and leverage them to be able to move on the path from where you're at to where you want to go. By the way, this has a complement in our life of faith. What is it? I'm going to tell you about it right now. Well, actually, I mean, I'll tell you about it in just a minute on Sound Insight by looking to the paths of the church. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out, drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Hey, welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. So you you heard what I just shared just before the break, and, and I'm going to tie this back to uh, Paul, Paul VI and Paths of the Church in just one minute. Um, but you just heard a, a sponsor mention of, of the work I do in real estate. In so many ways, it's the same thing. It's I meet with folks and I help them get clear about what their current situation is. And what their current situation is involves a desire to get to a better place, right? So they want to get to a place that's going to be healthier and lead to more flourishing for their families in particular, often their kids or their grandkids, right? You heard me share that. But they're doing that because their current situation is, is oftentimes very painful. And so you heard me talk about the slaughter of the innocents, right? So there, there's, a, there's a slaughter going on, a devastation going on, and they, and they can't stay there because it's just too painful to be there. So they're going to uproot and they're going to move, but they need to have a clear vision of what they're going to. And then they need a path. They need to figure out, well, what are the assets we have to be able to move towards that goal? And then what are the obstacles we have and how do we get them out of the way? So that's my mission. Oh, yeah. And by the way, that also happens to involve buying and selling homes often. So uh, that's what I love to do. And, and, and what's striking to me is how many times I end up hearing folks say, boy, this is so different than anything I've experienced from a real estate agent because of the conversations we're having have like almost nothing to do with the home. It has everything to do with the family. It has everything to do with our life situation. It has everything to do with um, where are we at? What's happening here? How can we stay? How do we make it work if we're supposed to stay? And then if we are called to go, how do we map out what that looks like to be able to go? And it's a, these are conversations that I have routinely. I, I had several today. Um, and it, and it's different answers, different times, different timing, and and uh, different situations for people. And for me, I, that's what I love so much about this whole uh, this whole world of real estate is that it touches people at places in their lives that are so crucial. It's their family. It's their home. It's it's the place where they 
um, want to experience most fully this sense of being a family, of living as a family. They want to feel a sense of safety, right? They want to feel a security. They want to have a sense of, I'm providing for my family by the place where I'm living. I'm, I'm protecting my family by the place where I'm living. I'm leading my family by the place where I'm living. And that is so crucial. So if, if that's something that you're struggling with, if that's something that you're trying to discern more fully, you can go to my website, drtomcurran.com, and you can just reach out to me. Uh, and just there's a contact page there. Also on my, mycatholicfaith.org, either one, drtomcurran.com or mycatholicfaith.org. And just reach out and just say, Tom, can we talk? Let's talk by phone. Let's talk by Zoom. Uh, I'd love to be able to be of service to you. And it costs you zero. It's free. Uh, my attempt to serve you is uh, pure intention and truly desiring to help you live your call today. Okay, so let's go back to 1963, and we have Pope Paul VI. He becomes Pope, and it's time for him to take up this role as the Vicar of Christ, the successor of St. Peter, and, and he's shepherding the council forward, and he writes this encyclical, Paths of the Church, and he lays out in this encyclical three paths. Well, guess what these three paths are going to help us recognize? Yeah, those same three things. What is this ideal that I'm pursuing? What are the areas in my life that I'm in the, uh, I'm, I'm leaving behind, that I need to be reformed, I need to change? And then how does this... How do, how do I leverage that to be able to then go launching out into the world to make the difference that Christ would have me make? So let's follow these paths of the church, because it's not just a document that is in the dustbin of history um, 60 years ago. No, this is something that is, it, it's a beautiful uh, way of bringing out into the open in that time and in that context something that is uh, fundamental to being a follower of Christ. So how, how can you be a follower of Christ today in a way that um, is the path and the paths that you're called to take? Okay, Paul VI, what are you telling us first? He's saying, well, the first path, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus and you're going to fulfill the, the call of God in your life, I hope that that's something that you want, right? I want that. Lord Jesus, I want to fulfill the call that you have for my life. Do you, do you think that? My brothers and sisters, do you think those thoughts consciously, intentionally? Do you, do you say those out loud in your prayer? Lord Jesus, I believe that you're aware of me as I sit here this morning. I believe that you are present to me. Even if I can't feel your presence, I believe that you're present here and that your Holy Spirit is stirring in me even the very words that I'm saying. But I say to you this morning, Jesus, that I acknowledge you as the Lord of my life. You are my Lord. That means you're my boss. That means you have the power to determine how I live, what I do with my life, how my life is now and what it will become. I surrender that power to decide into your hands. My decision is to surrender to your decisions. It is my will that your will be done in my life today and forever in every relationship and in every aspect of my being. Okay, is that your desire? Is that in your heart? If it's not, then you can start with, by the way, this is all the first path, by the way. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of praying you into the first path of the church. The first path of the church is the path that Paul, St. Paul, Paul VI says, the path that leads us to look Christ in the eyes. It's the path where we gaze upon the face of Christ. That's our first path. The first path 
that we are to walk if we're going to be disciples of Jesus is not that we're walking behind him, following him. It's not that we're walking beside him, listening to him. No, it's that we are going to him. It's the path to Jesus. And that means it's a path of prayer. And that means it's a path of our daily personal prayer time, not just communal prayer. It's not just liturgical prayer. It's not just going to mass. It's not just devotional prayer, saying a rosary and meditating. No, it's the Jesus, I'm looking you in the eyes. Even if it's just in my imagination, I'm looking you in the eyes. Even if it means I'm looking at a statue or an icon or a a, a portrait, a holy image of you, Jesus, a portrait, a holy image of Jesus. And I'm saying, Jesus, I believe, because if, if you don't know it, if you don't know it, like if you don't have that core sense of conviction and that rock-solid certainty in the depths of your being that that the Lord Jesus in, in his reality and his knowing me, loving me, being with me here and stirring and, and guiding my life, if that's not real to you, then this first path of the church is something that you prayed your way into. You're going to have to grow it. If this, this will have to grow in you, growth and awareness. So Paul the sixth theme, we grow in our awareness by undertaking the, the journey. And so get up in the morning before anybody else where it's still quiet, sit down in, in, a, in a prayerful spot, a place where you, you're not distracted by other things, and you look Jesus in the eyes. Now, what actually happens by grace is that the Lord draws us into the awareness of his gaze upon our eyes, upon our lives. Did you hear that? What actually happens in prayer is that he graces us to become aware. Blinders fall from our eyes until we realize that he is here and he is looking on me. He's looking upon me. He is looking me in the eyes. That's the first path. Pursue that every day. Pursue looking into Jesus' eyes. Now, you notice, I didn't say you're saying anything. I didn't say you're, you're, uh, you're, you're saying certain prayers. I didn't say that you're speaking certain words. It's, it's, a, it's a contemplative looking each other in the eyes. It's a contemplative. So it's what? It's a peaceful, silent, heart-to-heart gazing. It, now, you know this if you're a parent, you can look upon your infant, you can look that little infant in the eyes, and there's no, like, uh, it's not, you don't feel vulnerable and exposed because it's a little baby you're looking at. But when it's someone you love deeply, it, it, it can be a little bit, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very exposing, right? It's, it's, there's a lot that's revealed in a look-me-in-the-eyes kind of gaze. What about when it's Jesus? What comes to be revealed when you gaze upon Jesus' eyes? Paul VI tells us, you're going to be amazed when you hear, if you don't know what the answer is already. If you're not sure, well, stick around. I'll be back in a minute to tell you. Hey, welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. What happens when you look into the eyes of Jesus? Well, and again, it's like, well, where is he? He's not physically in front of me. No, you'll you'll know. You'll know. You'll know. Just trust me. Try it. Try it. Ask the Lord for the grace. Ask the Lord for the grace. Lord, please give me the grace today to become aware that you look me in the eyes. Please, Lord. And you know what you'll become aware of? Who you are. What? What? Who you are. What does that even mean? Who I am. Remember I said, what's the first thing that the top of the top in their field, in their athletic field, what is it that that distinguishes them from everybody else? It's they have this lofty ideal. They have this exalted goal. They have this vision for who they must be if they are going to be true to their deepest selves in their pursuit of the highest degree of excellence that they possibly can. It's an idea of who they are. That's what motivates them. Well, guess what's motivating you? Isn't a fantasy idea of who you are. It's not some illusory, self-generated idea of who you might become in the athletic realm. 
No, it's who you actually are, who you most deeply and truly are, because who you most deeply and truly are is who you are in the mind of Christ. Did you hear that? You don't know who you are. You think you know who you are. You got little elements and bits and pieces of who you are. You have a sense of your own identity that you that has grown in you. It's developed in you over the course of your life. But who are you really? Who you really are is who you are in the mind of Christ. All things were created through him, uh, before him. Uh, uh, all, things, all things were created by him. God the Father created everything in the word. And so who you really are is who you are in Jesus in his mind. And you know what he'll do? He'll reveal to you who you really are. And that's what you see in the scriptures all the time. Simon thinks he's a fisherman. He looks into Jesus' eyes and the encounter with Jesus in the miraculous catch of fish. Believe me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. You think you're Simon, I tell you, you're Peter, you're the rock. That's who you are. But it's only in the relationship with Jesus, it's only in that relationship, look me in the eyes, that he's going to discover Peter. He's never going to discover Peter if he goes within himself. It's only by looking in the eyes of Jesus. And again and again, Saul becomes Paul, right? Jacob becomes Israel, right? Again and again, Abram becomes Abraham. All through the scriptures, the encounter with God, the encounter with Jesus, look me in the eyes, is going to reveal to you who you really are. And so I'm not saying you're going to get a new name, but you're going to get a new insight into what it means to be the one you're named. Some saints actually got a new name. Blessed our saint, Elizabeth of the Trinity, uh, she uh, had revealed to her that her heavenly name is Praise of His Glory. Praise of his glory. That that's, that's who she really is. She is to be a praise of his glory. Uh, you know, her name on earth, Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity, that's her religious name. No, who she is is a praise, Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity, sorry. Uh, she's a praise of his glory. So who are you? And, and you can see that's where it all begins. When I say it all, that, that's where discipleship begins and ends. It's traced back to that encounter with Christ. And that's what we have to pursue because you know what, when, when you get that deeply, profoundly, uh, then all of a sudden it's going to stir in you desires, like this urgent longing to uh, tell others about Jesus, to, to love, to, uh, to love, oh, but actually there's a, there's a, a prior desire. That's the second path. <laughs> uh, what happened to Peter when, when he had this great revelation of who uh, who God is, the one in whom, uh, who is actually with him in Jesus. He says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. What happens to John in the book of Revelation when he encounters Jesus? He falls at his face, falls on his, uh, on his face as though dead. So what happens is you see, not only does he discover who he is in the mind of Christ, he also recognizes that he falls so far short. I'm a sinner. Remember, that's the second thing, not just the exalted ideal. In this instance, it's the authentic, most profound ideal. It's the idea of who you are in the mind of Christ. You also come to see who you really are. And so the second path that church must walk is what? It's the path of reform. Reform your life. Repent. Renew your life. Become someone new. Not just different, not just better, brand new. And that was the great driving pain was... I still fall short. I still sin. I still betray this relationship. I still settle for less in my relationship with my loving God. He's revealed to me who I am, but I'm so ashamed of who I actually, how I'm actually living, who I've actually become, how I've lived the life that I have right now. And so you don't have to like be thinking about, oh, do I have to go to confession and repent of something? No, you have a driving desire to say, I want to ruthlessly sever from my life all sin, repent and renounce all sinful deeds and attitudes and cry out to the Lord, convert me, Lord. I'm so tired of, of not honoring you with every thought, word, and deed, with every ounce of my being. I, I want to live for you. I want to love you. I don't want to fall short. I don't want to betray you. That's the fruit of the encounter. Not only will you discover who you really are and be overwhelmed and amazed at it, stunned, but you'll also realize who, how you're actually living and you'll want to cry out, God, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Please, 
Lord, I need to be cleansed. I need to be renewed. And that's Paul's, St. Paul the Sixth, second path. That's what we have to live. So you want to you experience renewal in the church. There it is. Pursue Jesus Christ. And then second, pursue. The, the overflow will be the renewal, right? The reform that I want to live differently when I want to become who God intends me to be. And then and then that's going to lead to the third path, right? And what's the third path? Well, remember now, right? So you're going to recognize that there's this sense of pursuing an ideal and then recognizing where you're, where you're from is so painful, you want to move away from it. And then there's that focus, right? Not, but not just a focus, there's gifting and determination. Well, what do you have? Yeah, you have all of the above. You have the power of the Holy Spirit who's gifted you given you many good gifts, natural gifts, and then gifts with baptism and confirmation. You are gifted. And those gifts have been given with a purpose. And when you have that sense of who God is and what God is calling you to do, guess what? You have also a determination. The power, you have a dunamis, a dynamism, a power, the power of the Holy Spirit to drive you forward, not to settle for less. That drive is to evangelize. That's the third path, what he calls the dialogue of salvation. That third path of the church is the path outwards to tell others, to announce, to proclaim, to shout from the rooftops, God is a living God. Jesus is the Son of God. He's revealed who the Father is to the world. He has conquered sin and death. He is raised from the dead. He has poured forth his spirit. He has founded a church. The Catholic Church is the household of God. It's the family of God. Come in and experience freedom from your shame. Come and experience all of the truth that will set you free, especially that truth of who you are. You can discover that through a living encounter with Jesus Christ. Come and encounter Christ. And when you encounter Christ, you'll know who you are. I'll free you from illusions, free you from chasing false dreams, free you from lies that hold you back and keep you bound up in, in ways of living that dishonor God and dishonor yourself. You will be set free and not only set free, but you will be given the strength you need to walk a path of renewal, to reform your life, to repent of misdeeds, to renounce those attitudes, to cry out to the Lord, make me who I am intended to be in your sight. And Lord, now empower me to fulfill your mission in this world. Give me the grace, please, to announce Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, not only of my life, but of the whole world. And I want you, brothers and sisters that are alive in this world with me right now, that are in my family, and in my friend group, in, in my schools, in my friends' lives, I just want you to know this is what life is all about. This is what brings life meaning and purpose, not a salary, not fame, not power, not stuff that this world holds forward. No, that's nothing compared to to the knowledge that comes from knowing, loving, and serving Jesus Christ. It gives us an exalted purpose that goes beyond this world that lasts forever. We have no idea what we've been caught up in, invited into. We are alive, and we've been rescued from sin and death. My brothers and sisters, it is good to be alive. It is an incredible honor to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ. It is an incredible gift given to us to be members of the Catholic Church. We have been given a mighty inheritance and a stewardship to share that with others because it's not meant for us alone. It's been given to us because we're loved, but it's not only given for us because he loves others and he wants to love others through us. That is our mission. Let's go spread the word of Jesus. No, we're going to be attacked. Don't be surprised. We're going to be persecuted just the way our master was. There are many out there who believe in lies and they spread them in ways that are clever and intimidating. And now they're coming after the church because the devil and the realm of the demonic hates the church, hates followers of Christ, especially those dedicated to him. And he'll be looking for any and every entry point he can to attempt to weaken our resolve, undermine and overthrow us, shame us into silence. We won't be stopped because it's the power of Christ who drives us forward. It's his Holy Spirit who moves us. Amen. That's the paths of the church. I tell you, Paul VI, he nailed it. Now we have to be willing to live it. God bless your day. Join me tomorrow and Kerry for more Sun Insight.